Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders as we bring to you the October 2016 speaker from the Whitechapel Society 1888, Professor Clive Bloom, whose talk focuses on the 1901 Icelandic version of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which was largely rewritten by Vladimir Adminson and will be published for the first time in English this December under its Icelandic title, Powers of Darkness. Translated and annotated by Hans Cornel de Roos. This is not only an important literary discovery, as the contents of Mac also reveal it to be a very early example of the Whitechapel murders in fiction, making it of great interest to students of Ripperology as well. Now I turn it over to Tony Power in the Chamberlain Hotel in London for his introduction to Professor Clive Bloom. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Chamberlain Hotel here in the Minories for the October 2016 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. Um, You're all very welcome, and I'd like to particularly welcome all of those who are listening in to us through the Rippercast podcast. And just to kind of paint the picture of where we are, the iconic Tower Bridge is 10 minutes due south of where we are. To the north of us is Whitechapel High Street and Allgate. Slightly to the west, a small walk is Liverpool Street and the City of London, and overlooking all of us is the shadow of that wonderful church, St. Botolph's Without, which was known as the Victorian Church in Victorian times, the Prostitute Church. Um, if you want to find out more about the Society, then do visit the website, which is whitechapelsociety.com, and there you can find out about how to become a member of the Society and receive our excellent journal every two months. Um, there'll be a list of upcoming speakers, as well as a, a, a shop area where you can buy books relating to Jack the Ripper that has been written by members of the Society. Tonight, however, we welcome Clive Bloom, who's Emeritus Professor of English and American Studies at Middlesex University, an author of over 40 titles, including Violent London, 2,000 Years of Rebels and Revolt. And I have it on good authority from our sound man, Steve, that it's an excellent book and well worth getting a copy of. Um, in addition to that, in your journals, you should have received information, a little leaflet like the one I'm holding up, on two further books that he's written, um, Victoria's Mad Men and Gothic Histories. So you can find information about those in your, in your magazine, the journal. Tonight, however, he'll be addressing us on the subject of Dracula Meets the Ripper. Mm-hmm. Now, most of us, I'm sure, have read Bram Stoker's Dracula, but I'm not sure how many of you are aware that there's a second book, a book that's based here in the East End of London. It tells tales of anarchists, occultists, and aristocrats. It explores the, rec- the impact of Jack the Ripper on the creation of Dracula. So to tell us more about it, please welcome Professor Clive Bloom. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Thank you for coming uh, tonight, and I hope you'll find it interesting. I'm going to be talking about... um, I have to tell you, first of all, I have a cough, so if I start coughing and choking, I'll have a drink. Um, I'm going to tell you tonight about um, something that came to my attention in roughly 2014, which was a new translation of a book that had been in print on and off since about 1901, And it was the um, Icelandic version of a book called Powers of Darkness. We know that book as Dracula. 
And uh, British and American writers, I'll try not to trip over this bit of paper, uh, British and American writers ha- and academics had assumed that it was a shortened form, an abridged form of uh, Jack the Ripper, uh, sorry, Jack the Ripper, Dracula. Interestingly enough, it is not. It has just been translated by uh, Hans de Roos, and it's out uh, from Barnes & Noble fairly soon. I've been involved with its um, birth for quite a long time. The book was not the original uh, Dracula at all. It was a complete rewrite. And um, interesting enough, we still do not know the history of this book. But what we do know is that Bram Stoker and Valdemar uh, Valdemar, uh, Asmundson got together and produced this book. It was brokered, the deal was brokered by Mark Twain. The um, book was serialised in Icelandic um, in 1900, and then it finally was published as a hardback in 1901. And everybody assumed, because Bram Stoker had done an um, introduction to it in 1898, that the book was just Dracula rewritten in another way. However, it turns out that the book has many differences, one of which, which I'm going to talk about somewhat uh, in a minute, is the fact that it is set partially, half the book, because the first part of the book is set in Dracula's castle, but the second half of the book is actually set in the East End of London where Dracula is not a vampire, though he's a vampiric person, he leads a gang of anarchist aristocrats who are trying to blow up London. Uh, His favourite reading is anarchist pamphlets and stories about Jack the Ripper. So, interestingly, this confirms something that academics have certainly discussed before and have not been able to uh, come to a conclusion on, which is how come... Jack the Ripper and Dracula are always conflated. Um, if you look at so many uh, stories or films, Jack the Ripper looks like Dracula, Dracula looks like Jack the Ripper, and indeed, um, it's this conflation that makes the whole thing very interesting. If you saw um, the recent Ripper Street, which had a show called uh, White World Made Red, I'm sure some of you have seen Ripper Street, um, sort of a bit strange, it has sort of cowboys in it, but anyway. Um, Ripper Street, uh, White World Made Red, was the story of a vampire. So why should vampires be associated with the East End? Why should Jack the Ripper, contrarywise, be associated with the Count from Transylvania? So the two go together very interestingly, and the new book suggests how that works, and... There's huge amounts of academic and scholarly work still to be done. This is not a hoax. This is not some put-up uh, um, like the Hitler Diaries or something. This is a real book that was published and has been translated, published now by Barnes & Noble, so we can trust the evidence that we see. But the interesting thing is it suggests that Bram Stoker, as well as um, Asmundson, knew something about the East End of London and indeed were attracted to the sorts of bloodletting that Jack the Ripper did, and also to the Thames Torso murders, which Dracula in the first part of the book mentions, which of course is all expunged from the usual British version of Dracula that everybody knows. So this is a second version 
And in that respect, um, you're, I can't uh, give it to you because uh, you won't be able to read it for a few months. It's not published yet. But when it is, you'll be quite surprised how different it is. The first part takes place in Dracula's castle. Dracula has servants, for instance. He also has a bunch of troglodytic very strange Darwinian-descended creatures who are called gorillas who attend his black masses where he sacrifices naked girls on altars. This is 1897, remember, when, when, when this sort of thing's coming out. And um, moreover, Dracula has um, a very, very voluptuous... Um, uh, assistant who constantly tries to um, have sex with uh, uh, Jonathan Harker and fails dismally but nevertheless uh, turns up in the second half of the book as one of the anarchists. The second half of the book about two thirds of the way through is London and it's set in um, a place called Parfleet which of course is Perfleet badly spelt and um, Parfleet is, we are told, to the east of the city. Now, Perfleet, of course, is in Essex, and it's hardly east of the city, unless you go a long way away. So it's set in somewhere around here. And, that, and it's not set in Carfax Abbey anymore. It's set in Carfax, the mansion, which had been abandoned somewhere in the East End, and Dracula has now moved in with these aristocrats, who are not aristocrats, but they're also anarchists looking to create a situation where they actually blow up London. So now we have three or four different things. We have murder, we have Jack the Ripper, we have vampires, we have anarchists, we have the destruction of the political system of Britain, we have a whole system of things swirling around the East End as a sort of a mythic entity Quite different, I think, from uh, what we'd expect Dracula to be. And if you've read Dracula, of course, all of this is expunged from the original version of the book because the publishers allegedly were too scared of political content in the books at the time. If that's the case, then we have a new configuration, something new to look at in Jack the Ripper studies, but also something new to look at in Dracula studies. Just to give you a few names, they're different if you uh, know Dracula. Mina becomes Wilma, and Wilma is someone who eventually visits Sigmund Freud. We're told she visits a famous psychoanalyst in Vienna. Jonathan Harker, of course one of the heroes of the book, becomes Thomas. Lucy, who turns into a vampire, becomes Lucia. And there are women servants and a good Scotland Yard detective called Barrington. So interestingly, the whole area here tends to swirl around a whole set of configurations. Scotland Yard, um, Transylvania, the East, murder, etc., etc. Let me read you a couple of quotes just to uh, get you in the mood, if, if it, as it were. Now, this is Bram Stoker's original original preface to this book, not to any book he wrote. This, is, this was only discovered in 1986. So it's a very new discovery. And he says, he's talking about the crimes that were committed by Dracula and the anarchists. This series of crimes has not yet passed from the memory. A series of crimes which appear to have orient, uh, originated from the same source and which at the time created as much repugnance in people as the notorious murders of Jacob the Disemboweler, Jack the Ripper. 
which came into the story a little later. So in other words, Dracula has attacked London before Jack the Ripper has turned up. Um, it's obviously he's setting things up to um, suggest it's real. He talks indeed about various people's minds as if it's real. We'll go back into the story, sorry, various people's minds, we'll go back to this remarkable group of foreigners who for many seasons together played a dazzling part in the life of the aristocracy in London. In other words, now we do not have the East End preying on the, the West End, sorry, preying on the East End. We actually have the West End here in, in the East End, somewhere hidden, closeted, about to attack its inhabitants and attack London. This is a very different way of looking, perhaps, at the milieu. What we're looking at, really, is the fin de siècle milieu, the end-of-the-century milieu, in which anarchism, murder, foreigners, all come together. You couldn't get more obvious a place for foreigners than the East End of London at the end of the 19th century. Jonathan Harker, now, of course, he's Thomas Harker, says that he travelled to Transylvania and gave up imagining what the West would look like. He had I did not forget to visit the British Museum to gain some knowledge about Transylvania. Transylvania, in other words, is so strange that you have to go to a special place to understand it. Exactly the same attitude that was taken to the East End during the 19th century. He says... Western culture met the occultism of the East, which intersect here, intersect in Transylvania. I'm at the end of the civilized world, at the end of the civilized world. In 1925, a journalist called H.V. Morton wrote a book about London travels for the Evening Stand, I think. And he says this, one of his sketches is about going to the East End. And he, uh, the whole sketch is about the East End. And at the end of the sketch, he, write, he says, I caught a penny omnibus back to England, back to England, with the feeling that I might have spent £200 and seen less of the East, less of romance, and much less of life. In other words, the East is where life, weirdness, strangeness, exoticism happens. You don't need to go to Transylvania, you only need to come to the East End. Dracula comes to the East End, he's drawn to the very strangeness, the very occultism that he couldn't find where he was. He wishes to explore London's, London's horror. The Ripper, then, is a type of Dracula figure, a type of masquerade of Dracula, a theatrical version of him, in a way. Now, if you read Dracula, if anybody has read Dracula, you know at the end of Dracula, they kill the women. Um, Van Helsing goes and chops up the, uh, the uh, brides of, Frankens uh, brides of uh, Dracula. And he says, my butchery, he talks about, butcher's work. The exact language that was used to talk about Jack the Ripper. And here we have Dracula talking about the fog as a vampire. This is Dracula speaking. Uh, sorry, this, uh, this is um, Jonathan Harker speaking, and then Dracula. I am this is not in Dracula, this is in this book. I am afraid that you would soon tire of it. Fog is the main drawback of London. It smothers the town like a vampire sucking its blood. Yes, said the Count, breathless with excitement, while fire seemed to spark from his eyes. Yes, 
these crimes, these horrible murders, those slaughtered women found in sacks drifting down the Thames, the Thames torso murders, which happened at the same time as Jack the Ripper, this blood that runs, runs and flows, with no killer to be found. And these murders will never be solved, he says, ever. Your writer Conan Doyle has written many good books about London, and I read your newspapers. According to them, barely 2 or 3% of all homicides are solved. So Dracula, just for once, is really interesting. I'll move on to Frank, Jack the Ripper in a minute. But Dracula is really interested in murder. He likes the idea of blood. He's been keeping up with the newspapers. So in this scenario, Dracula is a, a version of Jack the Ripper. Stoker clearly is interested in Jack the Ripper. And we know, for instance, that he knew McNaughton. Uh, and um, in fact, he sent McNaughton a, 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 the story, um, uh, Melvin McNaughton of Scotland Yard. He sent in the story of Dracula and McNaughton wrote back that he really enjoyed the blood and gore, but he didn't like the sex too much. Also, I have to say, also I have to say, it is suggested, and I have no further proof of this, that Bram Stoker at some point in his life bumped into Tumble Tea. So it is possible that he actually knew one of the potential people that might have done it. I'm not going to push that because I couldn't find enough to suggest it's true. It's also, of course, the case <clears throat> that for some time of his life, um, Stoker is meant to have lived in Plasto. And he lived very near um, the uh, mortuary um, at St. George's in the East, where one of the figures, uh, one of the bodies was taken. So this is a man who is particularly interested. If you've read Dracula, you know how violent and disgusting he is, and also very erotic, where the two come together, blood, violence, sex, and, I said, politics. If we look at this, then, what we have is a type of landscape of the imagination. That what we're looking at is not necessarily, not necessarily a place, but a landscape which is in our heads, something which we can uh, imagine. If we look at the 1888 East London Advertiser, for instance, this vampireness, this liminality, this fact that the East End is an imaginative space where people pour us, where people pass through, where foreigners live, where, which is in fact the East, but the East in London, the Empire in London. And here, this is the East London Advertiser from 1888. I'm sure you'll all know the quote. <clears throat> It is impossible to account on any ordinary hypothesis for these revolting acts of blood that the mind turns, as it were, instinctively to some theory of occult force and the myths of the Dark Ages arise before the imagination. Ghouls, vampires, bloodsuckers take form and seize the control of the excited mind. Before... Before he had written, before Stoker had written Dracula, and it took him about seven years to write Dracula, Arthur Macon had published The Great God Pan in 1893. And he has a line in that the police um, have been forced to confess themselves powerless against the explanation of the sordid murders of Whitechapel. But before the horrible suicide of 
um, Piccadilly and Mayfair, they were dumbfounded. You'll recall in, in The Great God Pan, uh, the devil uh, inseminates a woman who then um, has another devil who, in fact, uh, preys on people in the West End. So what I'm saying here is that Jack the Ripper and vampirism, Jack the Ripper and Dracula, have always gone in parallel. They're always mythically linked. Um, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> the point is that when you look at these things, these two go constantly right from the very beginning, right from 1888. People are making the assumption that Jack the Ripper has occult force somewhere around his, his, his persona. He can't be caught, therefore he's a ghoul. Therefore, indeed, he's a vampire. Guy Logan, who wrote uh, The History of Jack the Ripper in 1905, uh, another journalist, writes this about Mortimer Slade, who is effectively the Jack the Ripper character. He had examined, he had assumed for the purpose of concealment a false beard and moustache, exactly what Dracula wears at the very beginning of the story. So artistically contrived that the great Clarkson, not sure who he is, himself might have taken them for natural hirsute adornments. He wore a black Inverness cape, a dark slouch hat and shady boot, sh shabby boots. He had the appearance of a foreigner and an accent to boot. So here again, here again, we have, we have every, every time Jack the Ripper is fictionalised, he, he morphs into the Dracula figure. And every time Dracula is fictionalised, this new book suggests that Dracula himself morphs back into the occult force of Jack the Ripper. In other words, the two are in some ways imaginatively linked in ways that cannot be separated straightforwardly. So even the people at the time, that is in the 1880s and then later on in the 1890s, 1900s, felt that there was some occult vampiric force pushing Jack the Ripper forward. And people who memorialised Jack the Ripper in books like Dracula and elsewhere felt the same impulse. Jack the Ripper feeds in with his unique and important crimes, feeds in to the very things they are interested in. The next thing I just want to say is that Jack is very much an anarchist. Um, Jack is seen by Bernard Shaw and by others as being a terrorist who is highlighting the social conditions of the East End so that people, through the bodies of the women he kills, people will actually come in and do something about the poverty that's going on. The, I won't read the very famous letter by Bernard Shaw, but never, I'm sure you all know it, but nevertheless, he's a terrorist. When we get to Guy Logan, Guy Logan writing about Jack the Ripper, as I said before, Mortimer Slade, says about him, he's in disguise and he's staying in a house in the East End, and we're told he's a Russian. He's a refugee from Russia. And he must be an anarchist. They're always blowing up something. Dracula is just as interested in anarchism as anybody else. At one point, Jonathan Harker, Thomas Harker in the book, and Dracula have a chat. They're having a chat over the fire. <clears throat> this evening, the Count and I sat together, discussing political news from the outside world. The Count had a sound grasp of all events relating to politics, but I struggled to guess what political party he follows. In some aspects, he seems to be very liberal, like a downright revolutionary man. 
He spends much time thinking about socialists and anarchists, and he often expresses his peculiar views on both of these political movements. This is Dracula. They are good people, capable people. I've gone into the Dracula accent now. He said when we recently spoke of an anarchist organised riot. Now the riot may be the Haymarket riot or it may be the riot of 1888 in uh, Bloody Sunday in, um, in uh, London. 1887, excuse me, in London. So Dracula is essentially Dracula, the sex maniac, murderer, anarchist, that Jack the Ripper is being told we are, uh, he was. This is how he talks about Darwinian power. With tireless dedication, everything is finally set, he says, for the great revolution. Dracula, in other words, is a socialist. Our cause acquires new followers every day. Those of mankind who are chosen have suffered for too long under unbearable oppression, bigotry and the shame of majority rule. We have outgrown these slave morals and will soon have reached the point when we can press the message of freedom. The world must bow before the strong ones. This, Jonathan Harkas, Thomas Harker says, this is the very phrase constantly repeated by the Count. So if we look at that then and we think of the Dynamitards and others of the period, what we're doing is essentially looking at a, a, a set of events, set of ideas that constantly come together, that blood-sucking and murder and violence is to do with the anarchist way. And everybody seems to consider that. And I went before, I talked before, didn't I, about the occultism, the strangeness of the East, the fact that the West and the East of London seem to have a great gulf between them in terms of their interests and concerns. So the East End here, which in the new Dracula plays so central a part in its fictional uh, sense of what it is, is not merely a geographical location, but it's also a cultural location. More importantly, you sitting here today and me speaking to you, and I'm delighted to do so, creates a psychological experience for the place we are living in. So in a sense, Dracula, Jack the Ripper, is a sort of psychogeography of dislocation in which we participate. And mostly, most of the time, we rather enjoy participating in that. If you go outside the door, there's very little of the East End left of any great importance. It doesn't look like the 19th century. But leave me to walk around these streets, which I do very often with my students, and I'm dreaming away. Um, I, I can see anarchists around the corner. I can see all sorts of things going on. And that is what part of the attraction is. It's about dreaming. It's, uh, to me, anyway, it's, it's about that enjoyment. If you look at um, the pit, uh, uh, portrait of Dorian Gray, a friend of Bram Stoker's, of course, he talks about in, in that, and that's obviously he goes to the East End uh, when he's on his opium trip, he talks about the, the Whitechapel poor, and they have a long discussion about how very unhappy they are and how they should go and do something about it. In other words, the East End is synonymous with poverty. And I have to say, even now... I sometimes get other so, so say, where do you live? And I say, well, I live in the East, East London. I don't live around here. I live in the suburbs. I live in East London. And they say, how can you live... Am I've actually had this. How can you live amongst all those tower blocks? And I say, well, I don't actually. Ooh, are you sure? Um, other people have said, well, of course, people from the East End, they don't, they're not quite as intelligent as those from North West London. Um, 
I have had both of those comments made to me. The East London, um, the, the, um, East London Observer of 1888 was so distracted by these horrible comments, it actually wrote a whole uh, book, uh, excuse me, a whole book, a whole uh, uh, article on how the West End should stop being so rude to the East End. I won't go into um, uh, the females in the book because um, I don't want to, to, to bore you, uh, but I will go into um, Transylvania. So if we look at, uh, uh, when we go through this, what we see, in fact, is that Transylvania is not some foreign country. But actually, Transylvania, the whole idea of Jack the Ripper as being Leather Apron or someone like that, and at the same time, in other words, Jack the Ripper has to be a Jew or has to be a foreigner, is exactly what Transylvania uh, uh, comes together to show. People who went to Transylvania in the 19th century, and I've actually been there this year, but people who went to Transylvania in the 19th century brought back tales of the fact that the women were beautiful and that, unfortunately, they go to seed. That was the problem with Eastern women. They went to seed. And I have lots of quotes. I'm not going to read them out. They're too rude. Um, but it, essentially, uh, 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 and East End women were even more beautiful, but leave them a few years and they get fat. So um, either way... They're very rude comments, actually, very racist. But uh, either way, it's interesting that women, and of course both Dracula with his new girlfriend, and also the women who get killed, unfortunately, in um, to Jack the Ripper, both of these seem to suggest that it's women and women's bodies that is the attraction of the East. Interesting enough, it's somehow women's bodies that suggest the interest. Uh, in other words, it's sexualized. It's always sexualized. And Jack the Ripper's murders are usually considered sexualized, whether they were or not. And certainly Dracula's actions are very sexualized. And in this novel, they are downright filthy. Um, it's, it's near enough to pornography, some of the scenes in, in uh, the new Dracula. Very interesting. But if you think about it, the east side of the city is not the west side of the city. It's a cultural space, a type of new space of psychic uh, involvement where myriad cultures, just as in Transylvania, meet, where the smells are different, are different languages, different clothes, migration, movement, and the streets are a higgledy-piggledy jumble where you get lost. So if you come to the east, you're precisely deferring, as it were, your pleasures in the West End. Something has gone wrong. Now, Bram Stoker, just to bring some of this together, brought together the East, Transylvania, the West, with Jack the Ripper, blood, erotic bodies of women, and all the rest of it, through his friendship with two people who seemed to suggest um, the Jack the Ripper murderer Dracula type of character. And he was friends with Tennyson, Alfred Lord Tennyson, and also, more importantly, Sir Richard Burton, the explorer. This is him talking about Tennyson. Bram Stoker talking about Tennyson. Tennyson had at times that lifting of the upper lip which shows the canine tooth. He was dark, forceful, masterful, and ruthless. This is on um, Burton. Burton's face seemed to lengthen when he laughed, the upper lips rising instinctively and showing the right canine teeth. 
As he spoke, the upper lip rose and his canine tooth showed its full length, like the gleam of a dagger. So the explorer, the very fact that we're dealing with an explorer here, the explorer of the East, the Oriental, the weird, here is the Dracula figure. Here is the figure imposed, and I'll show some slides in a minute, imposed on the figure of Jack the Ripper. So just very quickly, uh, I'll just finish with what I have to say, then I'll show you. So that the... What we have here is the east end of the type of palimpsest, written on, written on, and crossed out, written on and crossed out, written on and rubbed out. In other words, it's like a Rosetta Stone of different informations, different ideas imposed. Anarchism, which goes hand in hand with Jack the Ripper, which goes hand in hand with blood, which goes hand in hand with the eroticism of the women, and goes hand in hand also with not merely the markets that that um, explorers came across in Transylvania, but also with places like uh, Petticoat Lane. Is East End, then, an actual object of study? And what I'm suggesting is, through this new book, that it's not a new object of study, that the East End is a type of projection, and it's a projection we all take part in. It's an object without an origin. It's a simulacra without an object. So, in other words... Coming here tonight, and I'm delighted I am here tonight, I'm not going to say that I walk around the East End saying I'm interested in this building, that building, that building. That's not the way I think people look at the East End. Fictionalised East Enders, not the East Enders on the television, they're awful, but fictionalised East Enders, in these books and these ideas, transmute themselves into the foreign, into the different, into the obscure and into the occult. Dracula in this book is someone who is obsessed with this occultism. This here, where we're sitting here, well, not quite, just over the road, is the centre of the occult heart of what essentially Bram Stoker and Jack the Ripper bring to us with the idea that somehow the East End has something different, something oddly spiritual, something very strange, something almost black magic-y about vampires, ghouls, the fog, Jack the Ripper... A murder. All right. Thank you very much for that. I'm going to show you a few slides to cheer you up because you're all, all, all think I'm mad. So I'll show you some slides now, and we can chat about. It. So this is the book. That's the book. Serialized 1900 hardcover in 1901. Is anything going to happen here? Maybe. This is G.F. Watts, the Minotaur. Uh, and it fits in with my argument very well. It painted in the 1890s. This is a bull, the Minotaur, looking out vaguely to sea, and he has in his hand a little bird destroyed. Now, this, of course, is W.T. Stead's um, uh, virgin tribute or whatever he wrote that book. And so this is, a, this is basically a prostituted virgin that the Minotaur is crushing. This is meant to be modernity. This is the image of modernity, the giant bull crushing the innocents. So even in the 1890s, the East End of London was already becoming a type of symbol of decadence, destruction and violence. This is Ripper Street. There they are. How sweet they are. Um, but Ripper Street is a wonderful example of the mythologising of the place, place we live in. There aren't cowboys. The, the police didn't run around with shotguns and guns in the street. Um, it didn't look like that. 
but it looks great on television. These are the quotes, by the way, from the original Dracula. That's all that's left of the East End that in the second book is so heavily talked about. In chapter 22, he talks about the deeds of the purchase of the houses in the Mile End, at Mile End. In chapter 20, he talks about 197 Chicksand Street, which has now been renamed in Mile End. And then in chapter 22, they go and destroy his boxes of earth at Mile End. You couldn't get <laughs> a more obvious example of Dracula living in the East End. The point is, his boxes are in the East End because that's where he wants to end up. This was all expunged. Uh, um, if you've read the original Dracula, you know that virtually none of the story really makes sense uh, because a lot of it was transposed into this new Icelandic edition that has just been discovered. Here we have the Whitechapel um, monster. Notice he's, he's, not, he's just a man. He's a rather badly drawn man. Uh, but nevertheless, he's a monster. In other words, the monstrous is in the east. The west does not have the monstrous. Oops. Here, of course, we have the posters regarding... Um, Jack the Ripper. Notice the Mephistophelian figure here has fangs. He's already a vampire. He's already a vampire. He's already become exactly what he transposed into in Dracula when it's written. There's the ghoul, very famous ghoul. Jack the Ripper isn't a person. He's a figment of our imagination. These are the anarchists. And in uh, the 1890s, there was a book uh, written called Hartman the Anarchist, which he must have probably known, which uh, Bram Stoker would have known, which is about a giant airship which floats across England and destroys uh, um, uh, the main centre. Where does it take place? It takes place in London. Where is the socialist who is the good guy in the story? In the East End. There's the East End. There's more East End anarchists. Jolly chap up there amusing him while, uh, while we're down there with uh, Winston Churchill. You c I don't think you could get more Jack the Ripper meets, meets Dracula than this figure. It, it's absolutely perfect. Yes, I know she's been ripped up and all the rest of it. This comes from From Hell, and it's, you know, it's quite clearly a conflation of the two. Very quickly conflated. There's Ralph Bates playing with a knife rather suggestively. Clearly another type of version of Dracula. Here we have, I don't know how you scream with your, with your throat cut, but on the other hand, this is a woman who's, who's clearly influenced by the vampire concept. The, the, when they made the film, it's clearly a vampire as her tactic. She doesn't really have a, a, a cut throat at all. It's, it's a vampiric bite. Now, this is, is not uh, just a modern thing. This is Bela Lugosi in Dracula. The very first person Bela Lugosi attacks in London is the flower girl. Look what he looks like. Look what she looks like. We're back in the East End mythic world that we were in before. This is uh, the werewolf of London, the original, 1935. Here again, a prostitute. Well, she's not a prostitute, but she's pretty near it. And uh, the werewolf is about to attack her. Where does this take place? It's meant to take place in Limehouse. And why does it take place in Limehouse? Because one of the women in the story has decided to slum it. And because she really likes the excitement of living amongst the poor. And this is where I live. And there's the Dracula Emporium all the way. 
and this is Transylvania House. They're both about two minutes away from where I live. So, so the, the myth of Jack the Ripper, the idea of Jack the Ripper, is something that has no object in its origins. The rewriting of Dracula is such that it takes the mythic form of Jack the Ripper and rewrites it as Dracula, as uh, the, the Dracula we know and love, but changes it subtly. Dracula is now an anarchist. Dracula is now at the heart of a conspiracy. Dracula is also occult, exactly the same as Jack the Ripper. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much indeed. We're going to take a short break here, okay? Um, and I mean short, okay? Let's keep it to about 15 minutes. It's half past eight now. So can we get back for quarter to nine? And that gives you another think about questions that you'd like to ask Clive, okay? Thanks very much. Before we actually start with the questions, uh, there's something that I just wanted to, to mention, which I meant to mention as part of my introduction, which is about um, Clive's latest book, which oh. I'm going to scroll up in front of me here, which is called Thatcher's Secret War. Um, and it's just been listed for the Bread and Roses Radical Book of the Year Award. So, well done. That sounds like a book well worth, uh, well worth getting. Um, there's one other thing I want to mention. Forgive me, Clive, just before oh, we go. Um, we do have somebody here called Chris up here on the right-hand side. Say big hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. <laughs> uh, Chris is a musician, and he's written a song called Foggy Night in Spitalfields, oh. which we were really hoping to play tonight, but we just haven't got the technology. Oh. But it is available on, on uh, YouTube. You can just Google Chris Bollister, B-O-L-I-S-T-E-R. And at the Christmas meeting, we're going to bring along a copy of the CD, and we're going to play the song. But in the meantime, we've only got a preview. supposed to bring me guitar and play it Okay, so coming back to uh, the subject of tonight's excellent talk, um, do we have any questions? Put your hand up and just um, ask a question when I get the microphone to you. Okay, we have one right in the front here. Hi, my question Hi. is, was Bram Stoker ever a resident in the East End then? Well, that's, this is the problem, because we know from his biographies that he's meant to have lived in Plasto. But whether I can't check that. So that would require a lot of scholarship, and I'm not really that interested if he did or not. The, the obvious answer is he had an interest in the area because he keeps mentioning Mile End. Now, it may have been, and I think it possibly could have been, the fact that Mile End to him was Transylvania. In other words, it sounds exotic. It doesn't sound very exotic to us, but to someone from the West End, I mean, he lived in, in Chelsea... So from someone from the West End or from Chelsea, that would have sounded very exotic, very weird, very strange. So I think it's, he could very well have lived for a time in Plasto, which would have made it correct, because I, I did say that he might have lived next to the mortuary in St George's. Um, if he didn't, and I'm going by approving it, but if he didn't, I don't think it matters that much, because it, to me, he would have read in the papers every day about Mile End, Mile End and Mile End, somewhere he might have gone slumming, basically to have a look round. Uh, but nothing else. He lived in Chelsea. Yeah, he lived in... There's a plaque on the wall, so... Hmm. OK, great. Another question here from the front, Ed. Uh, a couple of points. One, one is, when... I'm a bit ignorant about um, Bram Stoker. When did the first book... When was the first book published? The, the Bram Stoker's Dracula came out in 1897. OK. Um, it coincides roughly with Dorian Gray... And it's slightly earlier than uh, the, the other Jack the Ripper stuff, which is um, 
uh, Sherlock Holmes and the um, uh, uh, Hand of the Baskervilles, which also has references to Jack the Ripper, although they're subsumed in the text. So it's all around this area. Um, and 1905, I think, although I'm sure someone here will correct me, is the first British serialisation of a Jack the Ripper novel. Um, this came out in 1900. It was serialised in Iceland. I don't know what that means. But in 1901, it came out as a physical book. It came out as a hardback. But, of course, no-one reads Icelandic uh, except Icelanders. And um, so when they got hold of the preface... In 1986, they just thought this book, because it's a thinner book, was just a rewrite of Dracula, just smaller. You know, it's a abridged version, in other words. So um, when they did translate it, as I say, translated by German, Hans de Roos, when he translated it, he said, my God, this is nothing like Dracula, so what has gone on? And the big puzzle, academic puzzle, because this is the equivalent of finding a new Jane Austen novel in, in Gothic stuff, so, in our terms, it's what the hell went on. Why is there such dramatic differences? Why is it so differently written? The first half of the book is brilliantly written. The second half of the book is far less well written. There's a great debate over um, whether this Icelandic guy was a bad writer, a good writer. All these, all these quality discussions are going on now. So, but, um, very few people know of this. I mean, there's only about 12 of us in the entire world plus this room know about this new book. You, you mentioned several times that um, you think the Icelandic version is like the, although it's slimmer, you think it's like the unexpedited well, yeah, it's, it, it, version, it's including a, bits that have been censored sort of thing out well, of the original version. Well, it could have been self-centred. I mean, if, if you've read Dracula, you know it's a pretty sexy book. Um, and you wonder how some of the sex scenes in the book were agreed, and it's clear that the Victorians, late Victorians, sub seemed to um, sublimate these sex scenes and much preferred the violence. They didn't see them as sex scenes. They didn't understand it in that, the way we do nowadays since the films, since Hammer Horror and all those have, have made clearly Dracula sexy. Christopher, uh, um, what's his name? I've got this. Yeah, yeah thank you very much. Is, is, is sexy. So um, the interesting thing is once the films come out, the sex becomes more obvious, and that might be because of the 1920s to 1950s, uh, there was a, a change. But if you read this version, it's either Asmundson, maybe Icelanders were a bit more permissive, or maybe it's the original work, but it's much, much sexier. At one point, she says, we're told that the, the woman... Dracula actually says, Dracula says it, uh, he has a sense of humour in this book, which he doesn't have in um, Dracula, but he says to, to Thomas Harker rather than Jonathan Harker, he says, he says she's got bats in her belfry, he says she, she's hooting mad, and she's man mad, she, she, she just grabs, this, grabs him and chucks herself at him, and she's always, um, she wears very décolleté clothing, and um, she doesn't wear very much at all, and when Dracula has his midnight... Um, he sort of had midnight orgies. Um, they sacrifice. They say they have sacrificed naked women on the altar and, and all this occult stuff. So whatever's going on, and we don't know, either Bram Stoker said, go and do it, because I can't do it in, in Britain, basically, because I'll get into trouble for this, whereas you won't in Iceland. Or he made it up. I think Bram Stoker had a ruder imagination than maybe we now know. Uh, in other words, that Dracula was was self-censored. So, just one one last thing quickly. The uh, 
top hat and cape yes. Jack the Ripper image, yeah. there's a lot of discussion over where that originates. It seems to me, from what you said, it does originate with um, probably with Dracula, which is a little yeah. bit earlier than most people think. Yes, I mean, I, I think the what happened was Dracula comes out as as um, a move. The first movie is Nosferatu. Well, that's neither here nor there because it's not the same. But the first movie comes out in 1931, and uh, the Lodger which is, of course, Jack the Ripper by another name, Hitchcock's The Lodger. If you watch The Lodger, no-one's looking like that at all. But, of course, what would, what would Jack the Ripper look like if he was a gentleman? He'd wear a top hat and a cape and dark clothes because that's what a gentleman would wear. Dracula is definitely a gentleman. He's a savage, but he is a gentleman. So I think it's probably around the 1920s that emerges. Because Dracula in this book, in, in the Powers of Darkness book, wears a red cape. And that's virtually the first time in any Gothic novel that a colour is mentioned. Hi, I'm Clive. Um, you mentioned that um, Stoker may have known Tumble Tea. Well, um, that, uh, it, yeah. I get that from biographies. I, don't, I have no proof myself. That's a bio, biographical suggestion. I, I just, just going from memory, I think they may have had um, a mutual friend somewhere. The name yes, is Gates. Yes, they did. I the think moment, they did. Yes, they did. They did. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Okay. They had, they, had, they had an in between. I mean, a lot of the stuff I think Bram Stoker. Get, gets accused of or whatever is, is his mutual friendship with someone who knew someone. But everybody in those days, it's a, it was a small world. You know, society was a relatively small world, so you could, you know, people did meet easily. Okay, one more from the front, Liza. Um, two two quick things. How old was Bram Stoker when he wrote this book? And secondly, mm. was he married? Oh, Bram Stoker was definitely married, not not particularly to a happy wife. Um, but he was definitely... And one of the reasons she may have been a little bit less than happy, although she, she defended his copyright with fierce violence uh, after he died in 1911. I don't know how old he was, so I'm, I'm just avoiding your question. Um, he was born roughly in the 1850s. He died in 1911. You can Google it. Everybody can Google it now. My students constantly Google, say, Say, you're wrong, look, i got the... Di-. Oh, never mind. Um, so it's easy to Google. Uh, but she, she believed, um, I don't think she was worried about Stoker's, um, this writing, but Stoker, I think, and if you know the family, I've met the family, the family will deny this till hell freezes over, um, it, he may have had homosexual leanings. Um, he was definitely in love with Walt Whitman, um, because we know he wrote him love letters, so, um, you know, Walt Whitman, the poet, um, he wrote Walt Whitman love letters and Walt Whitman told it, finally wrote back and said, will you stop stalking me? Um, <laughs> and so that was the end of that. Uh, but the, the likelihood that Bram Stoker, who was in the theatre after all, would have had possible liaisons in, you know, in whatever, is pretty likely, I would think. Uh, so I think he had a, an on-off relationship with his wife. OK, do we have any more questions? Anybody else got a question from the floor? One in the front. Oh. One in the front. Oh, well spotted. Where? Here, here, here. Yeah, a bit off topic, perhaps, but uh, I'm wondering who is your preferred Jack the Ripper suspect and why? <laughs> um, I, I really don't have a... I mean, if I'm going to be honest, I'm going to have to say Dracula. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't really have one because... It's speculation, and I don't really do that. I, I do the sort of um, cultural impact of, of the characters and ideas. Um, my, my only person that I've ever written about was about 30 years ago when I talked about Tumbled. I wrote an, an article, in fact, the first, I think, academic article that was ever written on the subject, um, 
which was an academic article, if you see what I mean, about Jack the Ripper, and I, I said tumble tea. But that was a long time ago, and I know he's not involved in that now. Um, I don't know. I really don't know. I, I suspect it's someone incredibly ordinary. I suspect it's not someone exciting, it's not the Prince of Wales or something, you know, it's someone really, really boring. And the reason he got away with it is because no one noticed he was there. So that's how boring he was. Good answer. Okay. If there are no more questions, I'd just like to say thanks a lot, Clive. It's been terrific. Please give a big round of applause. Clive Bloom. Okay, everybody, we'll see you in December. And that was Professor Clive Bloom speaking on the powers of darkness, the lost version of Dracula. I wish to thank the committee of the Whitechapel Society for continuing to partner with Rippercast and making their bi-monthly talks available to the public. And a special thanks goes out to Steve Ratty, who so expertly records these presentations for you. If you would like more information about the Whitechapel Society, including membership, their meeting times, books, and Whitechapel Society Journal, please go to www.whitechapelsociety.com. We are a free podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find nearly 100 roundtable talks, author interviews, and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, and Victorian and Edwardian East End culture and crime. I'd like to thank everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time.